This is the Cast Iron Theatre Podcast, talking to you from the heart of Brighton, chatting about theatre, improv, comedy, music, stand-up, and anything else you want to chat about. If you are performing in Brighton, working in Brighton, and indeed if you just have one gig date in Brighton, we'll be chatting to you. This is a rather unique episode, well they're all unique episodes of the uh, Cast Iron Theatre podcast, but it's a a bit of a a more personal family affair here, because the people in the studio tonight, we've been working together quite a lot, Um, I I should get you to introduce yourselves. So I'm Andrew Allen, but people probably know who I am by now, who are you? I'm Michelle Donkin. I'm Chelsea Mountney. So we, we met you at, uh, last week's uh, podcast uh, for the uh, chat about Pop Heart Productions. How's your week, i.e. 12 hours been since we last spoke? Um, to be honest, it's just been filled with um, learning crazy lines. Well, not, I mean, <gasps> just shock. So many lines <laughs> to learn that I'm starting to become a bit odd. And I feel like, um, like basically, I, I walked, I, everywhere I walk now, I listen to my own voice saying the lines um, and then I stop and have to speak to someone like in a shop or whatever and I feel like I've forgotten how to talk as a normal person without saying a line so whose fault is this? Uh, well I think it's a joint effort on both yeah. your parts okay. really yeah. so we should, we should explain this is episode 8 of the Cast Iron Theatre podcast and it, it, it's it's about Cast Iron production we haven't actually done this yet but yeah. it's about Cast Iron Theatre production it's about our play that is going to be in the Brighton Fringe at the uh, Sweet Duke Box in May. Uh, Michelle, uh, you've had some involvement with this. Uh, uh, you want to talk about it? Yeah, well, I um, I, I did write it. Um, it's mine, I suppose. Um, it's called Model Organisms. And yeah, I'm just really excited that it's going to be on stage for the Fringe. So we should point out that it, it's, a, it's a solo play. It's a, it's a one-woman play. It is, yeah. Was that always the intention? I think it it evolved from a short play that I'd written for Cast Iron Theatre uh, late last year. I think so, yeah. Um, And that was called Tide. And that was about two different characters who were kind of inhabiting the same world that Model Organisms is set in. And from there, I kind of wanted to develop it more in a one-woman's journey through that world. So... Um, it, yeah, it kind of evolved through that. So what was the original inspiration for for Tide? Well, it kind of came from feeling quite angry at myself about how the when the refugee crisis happened, or is still happening, that I was kind of, like a lot of people, kind of sitting and watching it and going, isn't that awful? But yet, knowing that I was doing very little about it except maybe giving some money to charity and I kind of thought um because we have been hoodwinked haven't we if we share the devastating image if we click on uh, the the crying emoji on Facebook we feel like we've done something where actually we're just screaming into the void and I and and I'm completely part of that and I just kind of had this feeling that actually if I what I could really do is give up a room in my house I could stop what I'm doing and go actually help I could make that my life but I entirely didn't do that and I think there's something about that that then is me 
acknowledging that I've chosen this society, this world, over reality. I don't know if that so makes sense. So it's, it's less a response necessary to the refugee crisis and less a response to what is our government doing, but more an anger response to, well, what the hell am I doing? Yes, absolutely. I, I think anything that I I write about sort of is about a version of me in a world. Yeah. And it was interesting because we, uh, this hasn't always happened, but it has started to happen increasingly with the Cast Iron Nights. We do the evenings of short plays, 10 minute, 20 minute plays. And we, we don't ask for a theme, but out of the plays that we end up choosing, there ends up being an, an accidental theme. And I seem to remember on that night, we, uh, Tide was the opening play of that night, uh, where we were dealing with uh, two characters who had clearly been involved in some devastating worldwide event. And then the um, the end play uh, involved um, the destruction of the world by an insane president. Um, I should point out that nobody had been elected at that, that point. Yeah, I, I think it was very zeitgeisty kind of thing. And, and that when things look quite bleak, then there's that stereotype of writing becoming really strong. And, and there's certainly a truth in that. And, and Chelsea, you, you were actually in that original... Uh, version you were in Tide. That's right, I was. Uh, how did you 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 may you because you've done so much work since you may have no actual memory of this. How did you find it? Um, it was incredibly dark. Um, the character I was playing um was uh, just completely lost the plot in a way. Um, was insanely anxious and paranoid, rightly so. Um, and a very sad character. Um, similar in lots of ways to the character I'm, I'm playing in Model Organisms, but also completely different obviously i really enjoyed doing that show and the other actress in it shanali was incredible to work with um often when you could do short play evenings there's often a lot of froth i think yeah. um because i mean there needs to be that within the night but it was really nice to work on a short play which had such meaty characters in it and um such dark themes absolutely i think there is uh, sometimes a prejudice against the short play um i think sometimes people well i, I know i've read it online of people um railing against the short play format as it, it being meaningless or being frothy or being just no more than a sketch and without blowing our trumpet too much i think what cast iron is getting increasingly good at every single night is finding plays that can introduce one or two characters, make the audience fall in love with them over the course of six minutes, then devastate them by the end of the ninth or tenth minute. And that way I think Tide was definitely an example of that. Thank you. I, I studied film and, I, and certainly feature films um, and wrote feature films. And I think moving to Brighton and um, getting involved in theatre and, and then moving into writing short plays has been a real learning experience for me. Um, because you have to really distill everything down into ten minutes. There's no baggage. There's no. There's no spare parts you that you can lead up to your popcorn. Yeah. You have to get there straight away. Yeah, I, you have to come in, come in late, and leave early, like any good film scene would do. This is like your world building. You're completing. You're setting up everything within a really short period of time, and that's really challenging and really exciting and and something that I've been really interested in and, and from sort of thinking that, oh, you know, it'll, it'll be a way to write films eventually, I've sort of fallen completely in love with theatre and, and the restrictions that theatre can place on you as a writer can be really freeing Absolutely. as yeah. well. 
Yeah, I, I've, I think I'd advise that to any writer that um, if you say to a writer you can write about anything you want, then you're probably going to be quite confused and not know what to get a grip mm. on. But if I restrict you and say you can only do it in eight minutes, you have to have two female characters, it has to be set before 1982, then straight away, hopefully, your imagination is going to re- really click into place. Mm. Trust you were going to say... Um, I was going to say talking about what Michelle was saying about reducing your work into a shorter format and into such a concentrated format that that's a good exercise for any art form isn't it that um, you take anything and any piece of work becoming powerful essentially comes down to editing yeah. and to be able to um, put something in such a, a small little time frame um, that that's really useful for defining what your piece is about yeah. whether that be a painting or a play yeah. mm. I, I have been told once or twice that um, I, my work would benefit from editing <laughs> I, I don't know what they mean but, uh, um, uh, Michelle you were saying obviously a lot of your background is film uh, yeah. which reminds me of a thing that's come up a lot in the podcast uh, with creators and writers and devisers is they work from an image obviously film is image based uh, mm. arguably image is stronger than dialogue in film um how important is image for you when formulating an idea um well it's where it's i i usually start with music and image so when i was young like i've always written i can't remember a time when i didn't write stories um and whenever i i came up with stuff it was listening to music and then making the music video for it in my head i did that a lot yeah yeah i used to love that on the radio i and i remember the first proper one that i was like "Ooh, that could be a whole story was sarah mclaughlin and i can't remember what it was um possession maybe yeah and i also used to watch a lot of star trek as well i you know i still do i love star trek and 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 sequest dsv and due south and all of those quite formulaic film uh, uh, TV shows. All, all with square-jawed men in uniform fronting fronting the plot. Yeah, military background. You oh, know, yeah. I'm an I'm an army brat. That I'm I'm That's really not in... too much. <laughs> no, but I mean, I kind of it's a world that I recognise, yeah, sure. and um, I kind of I've always been interested in structure and society and authority and what that means and what that means when that's removed and there is something to be said i mean we have people have been historically dismissive of you know the american import tv and stuff but if something like due south or star trek allowing for adverts that's about 45 minutes of 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 narrative Mm. 45 minutes of story where you introduce the characters you introduce a threat you introduce a final third act problem and Mm. then you resolve it all and the moments in uh that 45 minute structure that are very moving, very devastating to watch, uh, where you can, again, fall in love with the character and then lose them. And I imagine, certainly in your earlier career, when you're, if you've always been writing, that's a pretty good tutor to have. Yeah, well, I think, I think that I learn a lot through that format and that it kind of, it teaches you, again, to, to get in late come out early of a scene to that there's very sparse sort of um structure that every scene has to be really funneling towards an end point yeah i mean really, I, I don't know it's sort of i like structure and i like that sort of americanized format but also 
once you know that and you know how that works, you can then begin to play about with story. And play with the toys. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, there's definitely a way to write a story and that's kind of very much frowned on as, an, you know, artistically people, oh, you know, you have to just write and write. Well, but actually, you know, the way that humans solve problems and the way that, that we identify and, and learn with a character is quite, you know, it's it's from... Greek theatre all the way through you know yeah. we know how humans interact with stories and how we can tell stories so once I really think that that once you know that structure and once you are aware of the craft yeah. then you can really play about with it and and definitely American TV shows growing up helped me to learn that structure and certain I mean I, I just love the world building I love the sort of the story per week yeah. elements to that yes. and the ongoing characterization every episode you have a little bit more of that character but it always leaves you wanting more I yeah. don't know I, mean, I really yeah, like absolutely. that and I think in the in the 90s that became that really became for I mean the obvious example really is something like Joss Whedon with Buffy yeah where because it previously in stuff like The Fugitive or Star Trek um they were very much I don't mean it's a dismissive term but they were comic book characters in that you knew who the good guy was you knew who the comic relief was but likely nobody was going to get sacked you know the stories will be in status for that and that's what helped the weekly story to a point but then in in the 90s with i'm gonna go all star trekky but with jean-luc picard and and next generation it was as um, i suppose every every generation of star trek has um uh, they, they they fought against certain stereotypes anyway but yeah. but the next generation episodes had a lot more certainly for me felt a lot more ambiguous in terms of right and wrong and I think maybe looking back on them now I think maybe not so much but but certainly growing up it was challenging sometimes to watch them you know yeah. it wasn't there wasn't necessarily an archetypal villain no. and there was there was a level of conflict within the main characters as well and also a fight against um, militarised thinking and militarised rules and regulations and things and then that eventually ended up with the Borg and absolutely I I could go on and on and on but uh, I guess what I was going to say with something like somebody like Joss Whedon who becomes a showrunner so he is able to dictate not just what the cliffhanger at the end of the season is going to be but I need this character to be doing this on this episode because I've got something planned for them in this thing whereas Mm. previously your hired writer for each episode would go he's the captain she's the advisor whatever and there's not much light and shade. Yeah. Whereas you're getting a lot of your education for writing at a period of time where, even if it is episodic, there's something about the long game. Yeah, and I love I love that. I definitely went on to... When I went to film school, it was definitely that I wanted to play with that a lot more. And I, I, I would more write TV pitches that were story per week but they had overarching story structure like you know i i would hope like buffy yeah. or um there were there were other c- series that were doing that then as well by that point there were it became much more of a thing to have because i remember arguments of a, a show called kingdom hospital at, oh, at yeah, the same yeah. time and the argument against that was that people audiences could not be expected to return to the same 
series if they were going to miss out on plot. And the show that actually really changed that was the show that made that negative point an absolute virtue was 24. Yeah. Uh, that was absolutely the show that went, no, 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 you are going to stick with every single episode. Yeah. Even though actually, if you watch the entire um, series, you could dip it out of that. But mm. it was a good gag to uh, come in on. Um, I want to, before we sort of move back to model organisms, uh, mm. the, the thrust of what we're chatting about today, um, I think it's a contractual obligation since we brought up Star Trek. Um, I'm not going to discuss uh, Duke South <laughs> or uh, DSV because I think that's arguably less familiar with a lot of our listeners. But with Star Trek, um, and I guess I'm including the classic and the Next Generation series, mm. we're not going to get into Voyager and all the others. See, it was always yeah. Voyager, really. Um, well, then you might want mm. to overrule me with this answer. What is the best episode of Star Trek? Oh, hmm. I don't know... Because I, I'm definitely the binge-watching kind of generation. Yeah. So I kind of absolutely... I can't... It all merges into one magnificent universe of Star Trek. Um, I really love... I love the, 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 you know, Borg. I'm not... You know, I, I feel like there's um, a, a geek sort of thing where you have well, to the credential you have to know the name you have yeah. to know the name yeah. of no, everything I'm, and I'm I'm definitely yeah, I'm care. not not even that I don't care I just I'm really bad at remembering titles but I loved the whole Jean-Luc um, being taken by the Borg um, best of both worlds see there you go <laughs> and I'm I, not even a, a bit, having said that um, I'm not a big um, Star Trek fan but the reason is I, it a boy thing I don't know it's possibly. like train spotting but the reason I say that is because <laughs> I, I have watched about what four episodes of Star Trek yeah. in total. And I'm much more of a Doctor Who boy than I'm a Star Trek boy. But I would say that that cliffhanger mm. with John Luke being taken over by the Borg yeah. is probably the funniest cliffhanger or one of the, in sci-fi history. There, you know, mm. To have your hero taken over yeah. by an unstoppable alien force as your season finale, Yeah, that's magnificent it's amazing and there's you know and just the knowledge that then would be downloaded into the Borg I mean he has access to a huge amount of you know Starfleet information he, he can't lose he's no. even you know um, at least um, Shatner had ego mm. whereas uh, Picard was much more nuanced than that so it, I think it hurts more to lose him yeah. with, with um, Shatner Illogically, you think, oh, he just punched his way out of being assimilated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, there's, there's a fragility to Jean-Luc, um, which isn't there in the first few, the first season as much. I've been re-watching it, as painful as it is, because don't go back, never go back to watch your old show. I, I still can't cope with the way that the, uh, his second-in-command s- sits his, down. Yes, and his, his one-legged yeah, lean one, yeah, what, what's thing. That I know, it's, it's bad. I, it's not bad, it's just of its time. Definitely, the, um, the freaks shake. <laughs> it's yeah, it's troubling, but um, I was all, I'm gonna definitely show my age. It was all about Will Wheaton for me. Absolutely oh, yes, adored yes. Wesley Crusher. Yeah. That was an episode he got at one point. He he liked a girl at one point, and I I Were think for me I was just like wow. And there was around that time I was definitely writing a lot of scripts for Star Trek that involved a feisty English girl coming yes. to work on the the Enterprise and having to be put with Wesley Crusher and not getting on at all. No, no. I Until was, they get trapped in the holodeck. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the holodeck. I love the holodeck. 
Yeah. I think there were loads of people also writing scripts to Saved by the Bell at the same time. Oh, I think I did that as well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, and Due South. There was a couple of Due South scripts that I wrote as well. Again, with a perky English girl. So, uh, Chelsea, uh, are you a Star Trek girl? (laughs) Um, Well, actually, I was brought up on 60s Star Trek, 60s and 70s Doctor Who, and The Prisoner, because Ah, my dad is a big high sci fan. But I have to say... A high sci fan. Um, oh, God. <laughs> I've been brainwashed by this script. <laughs> Sci-fi fan. But um, I have to you say... You remembered a line. Uh, uh, yeah, that's one. I've got one line down. Um, I have to say, I was more interested in the design and the sets and the costumes ever than um, mm. that kind of genre itself. But it, I, I really, you know, I love 60s clothes and I always have and all the design that comes out of that era... And I, it's my dad's fault. So, you know. What's like... interesting about those three shows is obviously uh, Doctor Who was just basically dressed by whatever was in the back room yeah. of the BBC at the time. And Star Trek, as you said, is a more military idea. Mm. And it's got the um, the red shirts idea. Although there's an article at the moment that indicates actually we've been lied to and the red shirts were not the most likely to die in an average episode. I thought it'd, it'd be more likely to be gold because they're security, aren't they? Well, maybe in the next generation they are. Perhaps, I, I don't know. I, I forgot the, uh, the, the, I didn't know the colours of the, um, secu- I mean, there's those no, those one-piece bathing suits that have come out this oh, week. Oh, I want in those. colours. Yeah. I think, I, my, I would be blue. What, what's blue? Science, Science. medical. Okay, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, um, <laughs> but the, pr- the prisoner, although it has the look to it of the, uh, the white-hemmed um, lapels for the jacket, that has a a beautiful look a weird gorgeous weird look to it it's incredible yeah I can't remember the name of the specific designer that a lot of it was based on um, but yeah it really captures that moment of the whole like space age craze within yeah. design and um, the juxtaposition of the twee little village but then all this kind of super modern spacey um, furniture and um, and the ball that's chasing him and all that I mean I, it's so creepy like even I watched it like a couple of Christmases ago with my dad and I was just going oh that dress I wish I had those shoes yeah. but like just it's so creepy like well I'm not sure that there are many shows that could make an inflatable bouncing white ball terrifying no and that's clever so um, Chelsea um, is this your first time of, of um, fronting a show on your own yes I have never done a one person show before and how's that going for you well it's exciting because the, um, no one else, no other actors. That does also mean that it's all my fault if it goes wrong. Um, so that's interesting. Um, so at the moment, I've been working really hard on trying to give myself um, lots of cues so I can cue myself when I go madly, deeply wrong. Um, so it's exciting, but obviously it's um, slightly scary, but... And we should acknowledge that the, the script, because it's um, the dialogue is delivered by a character who is trying to sort their way through life and is has been suffering from um, some elements that we may not uh, spoilerize in this interview, but they are struggling to piece their world together. That means that the script's already is sometimes disjointed deliberately so disjointed and has repetition of phrases and will start in one point reverse then come back to a point that's clearly going to be somewhat challenging for an actor yeah that's interesting because often things are completely linear in terms of when you learn a story 
and even though the the bulk of the story is told in a linear fashion she skips back and forth she'll be in the middle of one thing and then suddenly talk about something completely different and then come back so yeah that is odd in terms of how you fix that in your mind and yeah. i think i'm still working that out um however i have started to notice patterns which is helpful um, how is that when that suddenly happens two three weeks in when a logic pattern clicks into place and you've got a response of oh oh that makes more sense even though it's always there anyway yeah it's it's weird and it is always a joy to that i think that's part of the the joy of learning a script is that you always unlock little things you're like oh that's really interesting yeah yeah um and then it feels like you're the only person that knows it, and that's really fun. I think there is, <laughs> I think there's absolute uh, joy. You're absolutely right in that response of you. You feel like you're the only one who knows that. So, you know, even if it's a, a, a play that's a hundred years old, it feels like there's been a secret message from the playwright to you that you've suddenly unlocked. Because quite often, some scripts can be overwritten and want you to know that you should be angry when you're saying this mm. bit. And it, it's been said that Chekhov has been delivered as a tragedy for decades and decades and decades. And then somebody went, no, 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 this is a comedy. And there was a, a whole new resurgence of the way we did that. So, Michelle, uh, writing a play that is non-linear and sometimes uh, repeats the same lines, uh, d- did you have no consideration for your actor at all? <laughs> I am not an actor. Um, but since so screwed, <laughs> <laughs> they're a bunch no. of bastards. No, I just I try really hard to think about them. Um, but I definitely I have to say I'm not an actor. So I whilst we work with lots of actors in Cast Iron, and I don't know. I think if there's a through line and if there is there is a logic to the narrative then I'm, I kind of hope that actor will find it but I also yeah. don't want to be over prescriptive well, exactly, either yeah. Mm. yeah I don't want to tell the actor to feel a certain way or, or be a certain way or walk in a certain direction I was definitely taught through film school yeah. through everything that I've done so far that if your writing isn't sort of showing the actor what to do or how to feel then it's not doing its job anyway although there's still even if the, the writing is excellent there's still the risk isn't there that the, the the actor and the director may misinterpret or indeed willfully misinterpret what you've written but i think that's good i yeah. think once yeah once i've written it i i kind of think that once once i've written a piece that's my job done and then it's more that it's not that I disrespect the actors and the directors it's more that I just kind of think it doesn't belong to me once once I've written it I kind of hand it over and then it's up to the the actors and the directors to decide what they want to keep yeah I certainly remember reading something in one of our many guidebooks about uh, writing and playwriting Uh, I remember reading somebody pointing out that a play script is not the end product. Yeah. It's the blueprint for your house. And so it doesn't end with a script. And that, and that again, that's from my idea of film as well. Yeah. So film is hugely collaborative and the screenwriter is pos- not in the hierarchy of film. The screenwriter it should be massively important, she says, with a massive chip on her shoulder, but isn't, but is well, often treated. It's the old joke about, uh, yeah. about which uh, member of the film you're going to sleep with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and only the really, really silly people would sleep with the screenwriter because yeah. they had the least power. But it's definitely the case that once once you've written the film 
and hand it over it's then going to be rewritten it's going to be redrafted it's probably going to be given to two or three or four different writers to polish and yeah. change and the end product unless you're an auteur who writes and directs their own films the end product then is is not going to be the same as as the thing you've created and whilst that's sad a, a lot of the time it's actually definitely where I come from that once you've handed over your your piece of work to to a director and performers it's up to them to interpret it in the way that they see fit as well because otherwise we'd just be reproducing the same the same plays all the time so uh, you were speaking earlier about uh, being pleased finding it advantageous to have restrictions on your writing that that, that can actually funnel you down to a cleaner idea so talk to me about the restrictions of having to write or choosing to write a solo show. Well, I I really wanted to stay in the world that I'd created for Tide, but to have one woman's journey through this world. So I kind of decided to do a solo show and essentially a monologue. I'm not yeah. sure really of the, the, the definition of that solo show or monologue, but... I think we can apply both, yeah. Yeah, so I kind of wanted to explore the the world, like the external world, but also her sort of inner world as well. So I've been really interested lately in storytelling so prose and performance, poetry and monologue. And I think this is just an extension of that, that idea of an unreliable narrator, a stream of consciousness, someone trying to work through something. I think there's a real involvement of the audience in that way. So I think when you're going to watch something that's a two-hander or a bigger cast, there's an element where you can be kind of separate from the action. Whereas if you've just got one person on stage inviting you into their thought process and trying to work through something with you, I think that's a really intimate experience. And whilst there's no audience involvement, like there's no you know interaction yeah. with the audience in this show, there's still that sort of connection that you make with just one person. And that is hugely complex and hugely emotive, I would hope, yeah. and something that I'm really interested in at the moment. And there is a massive restriction here, and this question I guess is for both the, the writer and the actor, in terms if you are choosing to build a world for a play, but you're doing it via a single person, you've got literally within the character as experience, you've got a lot of restrictions. That character can only tell us so much. Yeah, they know things already. So they're not going to, you know, you're not going to say, I am English. Yeah, exactly. Because I, they I know always, that. Yeah, I always uh, thought, I mean, I'm doing writing some sci-fi now. Uh, although I'm a fan of sci-fi, I don't always write it because I always uh, came across sort of um, sci-fi that would have the the race of the Plutonians were blue-skinned but of course they don't need to tell each other this because yeah. they know this already yeah. um, and I guess um, either um, throughout early drafts or whatever you are having to make decisions as to what the character knows and what the character assumes and what's um, an observation about the world or a reaction to the world I yeah I, I think it's a massive 
challenge for me to write in a, a, a monologue essentially um but it's it's really exciting because you can't deal with exposition in yeah, the exactly. same way yeah. there's bits in the world that you created that you know that just by definition can never reach the page because your character wouldn't have access to that emotion or that information yeah yeah definitely i i think that's what I love about writing is world building and just having this whole universe of possibilities and then you choose to take your character down a certain route within that but by doing that rather than having everything of that world visible you have to kind of close doors so you know your character has to walk down one particular corridor in this sort of world that you've built one particular narrative journey but it means that all these other possibilities have been cut off so then you know as a, as a writer I'm there going oh I could write a story within this world yeah, but set somewhere else yeah, and yeah. doing other things that, so this could be your next 30 stories got, yeah all, absolutely all different yeah um, all star in Chelsea yeah um, oh, yeah. Obviously. yeah and so Chelsea this is a not as loaded a question as it might appear do you like your character I think I maybe wouldn't have liked her so much um in her previous life before we join her in this story I, see. I feel extremely sad for her and for the things that she's been through. And I think that makes me like her in a way. I feel, um, I just feel really sorry for her and have real empathy for her. Yeah. So I think we're just over halfway through our podcast. Uh, so it, it's really the time to actually ask uh, Michelle, um, as a writer, what is Model Organisms? What's it about? So it's, yeah, a solo show. It's set in the near future after devastating pandemic has swept the world and indeed continues to sweep the world. So we explore the world through the eyes of an unnamed woman. Yeah. Or indeed... She's got a number. She is F139C. Which does link in quite neatly with the prisoner. Oh, does it? <laughs> you, are, you, are, you are not a free woman and you are a number. Yeah. yeah. I wear a 60s dress. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, because you don't look like Patrick McGowan. Damn it! <laughs> I've got the jacket actually. Have you? Yeah. Well, not that one. I mean, oh, that no. would be cool. I think I've seen you wear that yeah, jacket, it's like and, a I, and I was quite jealous place. of it. It's yeah. really good. I, I once was dressed as the prisoner for a fancy dress costume, which I made. I, I did the piping on, the and I'm not a seamstress at all. <laughs> Oh. I'm sorry, we, we interrupted uh, you telling us what the play's about because we, <laughs> we got distracted by the prisoner again. No, of course, that's fine. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, she's. Uh, we sort of take our journey through the eyes of this, this F139C woman who she's trying to escape from a medical facility, but she's been drugged and is somewhat unsure of what's going on so she's trying to piece together the events that have led to her being in the facility and kind of while she does she we get an insight into what she's been through so it's it's really a play about things that I enjoy writing about so the the structure of society and how fragile that is but there's also definitely elements of masculine power and kind of female disempowerments running through the play so it's not a musical then it's not a musical i probably could put in a couple of show tunes no you're right (laughs) Um, that's too much a couple of jazz jazz hands hands. when because it arguably is nihilistic or discusses those tones 
Um, did the play surprise you? At all? I mean, you were the one who wrote it, but mm. did it did it surprise you as you were writing it with elements of nihilism or indeed hope? Yeah, I I was really quite concerned when I wrote it because I I was kind of thinking, oh, it's so bleak, but I think because it's set in the near future and because in that respect it is, I suppose, sci-fi in 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 that regard, it's kind of my attempt to kind of say we don't need to be like this it's it, so i suppose that's the a, hope a warning from well not a warning from history but a warning from the present yeah i mean i would i'd really like to think it's a tiny tiny bit like the handmaid's tale um i mean if i could be like a fraction of margaret atwood then i'd be very proud interestingly uh, i happen to know that you just by chance hadn't read that novel before you'd finished the scripts? No, I'd never read it. So I was, and I'm kind of glad I'd, I, I hadn't read it because, I don't know, I, I'm, it's really hard to, without blowing my own trumpet massively, I... You're I, working in the same field. Yeah. Uh, not, not, the same, um, not the same field of, you know, writing, but um, you, you are drinking from the same world. Yeah. You're discussing the same ideas. And I was really, really pleased i think once i'd once i'd finished model organisms i then read the handmaid's tale and and kind of was relieved that something so bleak because could exist and be revered and then in terms of the handmaid's tale and then it was i was really pleased with my own work it legitimized what you were discussing yeah did, did it not because i think it might have done for me did it not upset you that somebody had played in the same ball pit before you did no because i don't know i kind of i think the someone's tested the waters a little bit and honestly if i you know if i could even be close to how brilliant she is i'd be very happy i'm you know i think model organisms is not entirely the same it's kind of like the handmaid's tale meets contagion yeah yeah. So it's kind of different. It's not. It's it's it's, c- it's coming in you know, at a different angle. Yeah. Now, well, what's interesting to because there, there are plenty of end of the world and society upended type dramas out there. Mm. Uh, what's interesting about the connective between Hammy's Tale and Model Organisms is this discussion of how it changes the structure of society for a woman. Yeah, and and that is, you know, something that I've I'm always really interested in and I kind of I write women because I, I a lot of the time it's how I get into a story of imagining what I would do. Yeah. But also I just think there's it's really interesting to look at the world from a female perspective and not always have strong, powerful, Xena, princess, warrior females and say that is a strong woman or Buffy and say that is a strong woman because she's flawed but she does kickboxing. I'm interested, uh, whilst I'm massively interested in those as well, I'm also interested in real women as well. Because generally speaking, we're still at a point, aren't we, where um, if you think of any detective story they're allowed to have a failing marriage they're allowed to have a a drink problem they're allowed to sort of um, have a quirk whereas we're not that good at letting our strong female characters have flaws and things that we dislike about them yeah Uh, which is I guess why Prime Suspect is such a a, an important uh, drama uh, in the does all those things but with Helen Mirren at the, the forefront yeah, it's yeah. It's interesting that we're mentioning people like Buffy and uh, Prime Suspect 
the, these dramas are, are 20 years old or more. Um, mm. I'm not sure that we have anything comparative at the moment. Jessica Jones. That's true, yes. Yeah, Yeah, that would be... Although she does kick ass. She's still, she she's still super-powered. Super-powered. There are, I mean, there will be. I'm going to, it's one of those things that I'm going to... We're going to create, you, you're going to create it. Well, no, I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to walk away and in half an hour go, oh, there's that character and that character. They definitely We'll exist. get the editor to have link, link it in. Yeah, that's handy. Seamlessly. <laughs> uh, so, Chelsea, I guess the, the same sort of uh, question for you. There are already a lot of dramas about end of the world societies. We don't often discuss what it is to be a woman in that society. No, and I, I think stereotypes of female characters get played out so often instead of the writer bothering to think of them as more of a human rather than a woman. Mm. Um, but I think the interesting parallel with Handmaid's Tale is that it is um, a woman's view who isn't perfect, and I would make I would say that would be the main parallel. I see them as uh, having I've not read Handmaid's Tale, but I was in a play based on that um, and played a character within that world, and I see them as such different worlds. Even though um, it's kind of dystopian and it's about female space, like um, I see them as really different things, and that's why this show is such a great opportunity as an actor. Is it's very unusual. To play a character like this um, and it's very unusual to be given a script like this that is written for a woman that faces the things she's talking about without being strong and without being even nice at times and that's mm. is she a hero i don't think so it's certainly one of the things uh, i guess i open this question to michelle as well uh, it's certainly one of the things she never used the word hero and i, I don't think that becomes part of her mindset but we in the audience might be aware mm. that that's part of her makeup is to decide whether or not she should be a hero or not is, is that fair Michelle yeah I think her her main dilemma within within the play is whether she's going to be heroic or whether she's going to be selfish. cowardly and selfish mm. yeah um and I think that's something again with the refugee crisis it's something that I in my little world and my little egotistical battle in life have always struggled with and yeah. I'm definitely interested in ideas of cowardice and and heroics and again I imagine that probably falls into notions of duty and structure and society um yeah. but I think in terms of whether she's a, he a hero there's different there's different takes on that. I mean, if you like hero in terms of someone that will sacrifice themselves for someone else, but also hero in, in terms of a protagonist, I think that strong characterization is about debt and weakness and strength. You can identify with them through through lots of different ways and through their weaknesses and through their wants and their yeah. desires. And I'm really interested in writing female characters that are flawed and troubled and unfinished. That's yeah. really important. And then, to me, that's more real than either, you know, a bland girlfriend mother, which I'm not interested in, yeah. or a sort of all-singing, all-dancing pixie dream girls or kick-ass types that, you know, also are equally bland. I think what's really interesting, especially about this character, is she never mentions 
the way she looks in terms of her rank with anything. So she never mentions, she doesn't mention her looks once. Now obviously she's placed in a world where that is less important, but she never ever refers to that um, in her previous life. And I find that really odd and that's really stupid. Like it's stupid that that is odd, but that mm. I feel like that is odd. Yeah, it's interesting that that sort of thing catches on the eye, isn't it? Um, I think about this in terms of film posters, that if you have a film poster with five characters in the image, if four of them are male and one of them is female, we tend not to notice. If three of them are male and two of them are female, then we might not notice. Once it starts getting to there are more than two women on the image, that drags on the eye. And if we think there are three women in the image or five or six, we immediately think that the core audience are women. Mm. I suppose unless... They're wearing bikinis, and then that changes it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I like to think that this character, if the if this play, this this pandemic hadn't hit, I like to think that she is already on the verge of questioning her place in society, her role in society, and that this pandemic hits and it changes everything for her and then she's in many ways just a puppet of different masculine worlds mm. yeah so this is it is a discussion not necessarily an attack but it's a discussion on where we place women in the everyday life and w- what would happen if something devastating happened to the world mm. and so there's a, a woman's voice there discussing that um an actor playing a female actor playing a female role um so there's lots of things to unpick there in terms of a woman's observation, as in creatives, a woman's observation of the world. We have a male director, yeah. um, which in many ways shouldn't be important. If they're good enough, then they're just transposing the story. But that's, that's I don't know if it's worthy of note, but it's certainly um, up for discussion. Yeah, but I, I don't think that I, I don't think that that matters. Yeah. I think you're known to be, I, I don't know what the phrase is, a feminist supporter, a supporter of women. I think the current acceptable phrase is ally. An ally. I believe that's the this week's appropriate phrase. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that's quite well known around town. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I think you are a skilled director. I think you're someone that I clearly because i married you i trust you yeah and i value you as a human before noticing your gender that's a good thing for a husband to hear um <laughs> uh, how is it because it is an ardently no, no I, I wouldn't necessarily argue that it is a ardently feminist play I, I think that if we are being feminist with this play it's somewhat smuggled in it's not there's no soapbox no. how is it to be directed in Again, I, my assumption is that it's not really occurred to you before because we've worked together before now. Mm. Um, no, it hasn't. And I think, you know, if you are writing something which is about female voice and you decide perhaps that it should be directed by a woman just for the sake of it, mm. just um, to somehow prove a point that's silly. And why shouldn't a male be invited to work on a piece that and have a, a male comment and viewpoint on that you know if we if we say that we don't want a male director for the sake of it then we're just as bad as all the misogynists that have come before saying Mm. that you you know and we're kind of discriminating by gender and that's just as bad in my eyes so i wonder also that uh, because i've often thought about this with work that i've been working on i've sometimes thought that if you are doing a play that has something to say about um 
the female experience and it's an all-female cast it's written by a female and it's directed by a, a female then sometimes um certain elements of your audience can not be angered by that but they can they can they can front against that they, they feel that there's a there's a, a statement of argument being made when, mm. it, when there isn't mm. yeah but i also i also think that's that's fine and that's up to them to do <laughs> whatever and also the fact that it has a male director is not like I don't know. It's it's not. I think in important. This, yeah, it's totally irrelevant in this case. Yeah. You know, yeah. it should be about who are the people in your team. What's the team? You know, how that team happened upon that year, and mm. you know, are they really going to be really good working on it? Yeah. So that's that's what it's about. Yeah, you know? and it, it's also in terms of the balance of those relationships. Is it a collaborative process, yeah. or is it that a a person has come along, taken the play, misinterpreted it, and decided to put <laughs> Chelsea in a bikini and do her lines whilst rubbing herself yeah straddling a chair or you know stripping off halfway through Mm. because that's more interesting and she will not be doing those things we we haven't discussed any of the rehearsals Michelle have we (laughs) (laughs) well I would yeah well the writers the writers dead what can I say (laughs) that would be sad if that were the case yeah but it's about trust isn't it so we should really uh, take a moment to mention the actual dates of the play. Yeah, so it's on on the 4th, the 5th, the 6th and the 7th of May at 7pm yeah. at the Sweet Jukebox. Yeah. And then it's on again on the 15th, the 16th and the 17th so of a, May. So it's a broken run. It is, yeah. We've got four days at the beginning yeah. and then three days at the end, 15th, 16th and 17th. And again, that's at seven o'clock at the Sweet Jukebox. This play is in part, it discusses um, what you might largely call the end of the world. Obviously, there are people still alive and mm. um, there are other aspects to it. So it's not as simple as that. But if you were going to put it in a, like a genre, it might be in the end of the world type um, story. Yeah. So uh, my question, uh, which uh, is one of the, our final questions is, in terms of film or TV, what is your favourite end of the world type drama? Because well, including like Armageddon, in which the world does not end, but it's got a suitable name. Um, yeah, we both frowned at each other massively. When yeah, we... you have no idea. But do we have any ideas of what an ideal end of the world type film or play is? 28 days oh, later. 28 days later, yes. England, Killian Murphy, anyway, you know. Naomi Harris. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah, um, yeah. I w- I think I was just jealous of her. But um, yeah, I I love Twenty Eight Days Later. It was really. Sc- I'm not very good at scary no. films. That's quite scary for me. Um, but it, it's, it's just the idea film. of it being empty. That yes. he wakes up and London is deserted, or so it seems. Oh, and I am Legend. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes. I have to say this: model organisms is not a zombie end of the world drama but there are i love the idea of there's theories aren't there about zombies being the 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 cinematic equivalent to plague anyway and disease oh and of course Shaun of the dead ah yes but uh yeah i do like a zombie film it seems yeah yeah um i particularly enjoy the beginning of 28 days later that's vaguely inspired by david triffords when the lead character gets up and the world appears to have left without him um, oh, and what's the one with um, Donald Sutherland that I adore? Oh, the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That's terrifying. Which has got some really uh, lovely moments. It's, it's genuinely, once you get under the hood, very funny. It's a, it's a comment on the political climate at the time 
there were there were gags in it that are talking about um, subtly talking about the uh, democratic and the republican sort of infighting at the time which I ah. think is quite cute it had Spock in it it has a Leonard Nimoy in it it's got some really lovely sound effects uh, for the voices of the possessed and um, in this week's um, obligatory uh, Doctor Who reference it, it, there are images of that that get stolen for a two-parter a Peter Capaldi two-parter about the Zygon inversion where the remains of the humans become like candy, grey candy floss I also love the doctor. We're watching the marathon. We are at the moment, aren't we? And we're, we're, we're quite low. We're quite slow behind. Yeah, in where we are. We're but we're in still 1966. We are. Um, this is where you watch all the 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 episodes of Doctor Who from the beginning. All 55 years worth. Yeah, well, that's at, quite a commitment, I imagine. It is. That is. Yeah. So where we? Uh, yeah, you're gonna say we. But there's a. I again titles. I don't. You know. Oh yeah. Um, about them. The the Dalek, the Dalek invasion, invasion of, Earth. of Earth, which is. Does what it says on the tin. That's my kind of title. Um, but you were really talking about the first image, which I now, yeah, I just, I just the, I can't think whether it's a first image or not. But, but the 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 Robo Man sort of stump. Oh yes, into into the the into River the Thames, Thames. Yeah. and but that deserted world as well. Yes, you know, yeah. love that. I love deserted societies. Yeah, post-apocalyptic. I'm, Interesting. I, yeah, I'm definitely trying to get you to either. Um, currently, I'm trying to get you to read or watch either version of uh, The Girl of All the Gifts. I will, I will. It's a bit scary. I'm going to read it first. It's a bit sort of zombie-inspired, although I don't think that's really what the book is discussing. And. Um, has some really lovely things to say about you know how we respond to a deserted society. Mm. Um, Chelsea, um, we, we've cunningly um, <laughs> kept you out of the conversation for a while. Do you have any sort of? It's not really my area, Andrew. Yeah. Um, but I a song five years Bowie. There you are. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. There we go. End of the world. What's that? A song five years by Bowie. It's, ah. it's got five years that the earth is going to end. Because a lot of... Oh, God, I just sound like a terrible Ziggy Bowie geek. Is, is it, is but it, that is album, yeah, is, yeah, is all about that stuff. I, I want to ask um, a couple of questions, because, uh, Michelle, uh, you're often um, behind the scenes on the podcast. You, you are actively involved with every single podcast, but we don't get to hear you that often. I am, and um, I, I'm... I'm oh, I, it's terrifying i have to say to be on this side and i'm slightly worried about how much i'm gonna have to be listening to the sound of my own voice whilst editing uh listening to the sound of your own voice um start (laughs) to notice odd things like that you shouldn't be thinking about because it's totally insane and you're overthinking tiny inflections. Oh, that's because of your line learning. I'm yeah, just, that's yeah. right, yeah. Oh. I've, I've started to go slightly insane. But it's good, it'll come out in the character and method. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but, Michelle, you, you have been involved in uh, all the podcasts up until now. Mm. Um, so you know what's coming next. Really. Yes, that's um, my favourite bit. So, okay, so um, let, let's um, tiptoe into this by asking... In fear, the easier question first. Uh, what, what book are you reading at the moment, or have you read recently that you would recommend? What TV program are you watching that you would recommend? What film did you see recently? It doesn't have to be a new one. There are so many. I have been very much taken with RuPaul's Drag Race. That seems to be having a height of fashion, to coin a phrase. Have right you now. watched the. I don't know what season you're on. I'm on season. Oh, I think seven. Has it got Bianca in it? If it has, I'm very early on in there. I don't know who there's, is who There's yet. a great film from one of the um, 
Queens called I think it's called Bianca Begins. I might Oh Bianca Del Yeah. Yeah, no, I do, yeah. Yeah, not Bianca Begins. What was it called? Oh but there's a film on Netflix which you can watch uh with her character in and uh it's brilliant. They keep advertising <laughs> that on the end. Honestly, it's yeah. so funny. Yes, yeah, really feel good. It's slightly cheesy, but it's so funny. Watch oh, it. I will, I will, yeah. So you're uh, you're very much a Netflix girl. Yes. I binge I, I binge watch pretty much everything. So um, films that you've seen recently? Films, not so much. I yeah, uh, I really liked Beauty and the Beast because I'd never seen the, oh, the remake. Yeah, never seen the cartoon. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because you're going to be one of the few people in your generation who came into the live action version first. Yeah, and probably will end up enjoying the live action version more than the cartoon simply because that's what you saw first. Yeah. Well, I didn't because we didn't watch. Disney, anything musical at all growing up wasn't... I don't remember watching that. I think we saw Aladdin. Uh, but, yeah, I, so so Beauty and the Beast was far too highbrow, I think. <laughs> I don't know, can it be highbrow? Far too highbrow, okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It was, you know, too musical. Yes. I don't know. It, it never appealed to me. Maybe maybe it was in the house. There's a teapot that sings. I, yeah, I didn't... She's even called Mrs. Potts. What were the chances? I've, I haven't seen really anything with musicals. No, I, 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 but you were, you were a big fan of Mary Poppins. I liked that. that yeah. yeah, that was good. I didn't see Mary Poppins until I was in my 40s. Yeah. Not all the way through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I literally saw the making of uh, Mary Poppins before I saw Mary Poppins. I saw um, Saving Mr. Banks. I love Saving Mr. Banks. Before I saw Mary Poppins. Yeah, and oh, I watched The King's Speech again recently. And the Queen, I'm going through a sort of slightly royalist phase, apparently, which I don't think I am. But yeah, I, I'm fascinated by history and, again, society and rules yeah. and social structures. Any books? Uh, at the moment, I am alternating between <laughs> Game of Thrones, but I'm also reading Alan Bennett's book. Oh, keeping on, keeping on. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, completely forgotten the title. Um, so yeah, I'm alternating between um fantasy dragons yeah. and and war and battle and sex and Alan Bennett. See, Pete, I I always ha- tend to have about six or seven or ten books all at the same time. Mm. People will say to me, "Don't you ever get confused with the different books?" And I and I, I don't see that. I, I you, you, we can watch different. TV programs and not get confused but I am quite engaged by the idea that you could have <laughs> you your, could... the world of Game of Thrones read in the voice of Alan Bennett Jon Snow I'd be into it if that was Alan Bennett it just occurred to me that somewhere somewhere online they've got a, an impersonator doing Alan Bennett reading Fifty Shades of Grey that, oh. that, that must exist that would be oh, hilarious that's bizarre yeah Let's just think, let's just dwell on so, that for a moment. Chelsea, I, I sort of ignored you in this questioning because we did have you in last week's um, podcast uh, as part of um, Pop, Pop Productions asking the same questions. But I was wondering if you do have any new answers as to what <laughs> what books you're enjoying, what films you're enjoying, what TV programmes you're enjoying. I'm kind of all going out for comfort at the moment with things um, and distraction. So I've been watching, re-watching all of Fresh Prince. Oh, and, fantastic. Uh, which I very much enjoyed because it's super naff. Um, but it's just cute and it's fun. Yeah, so I've been watching that. And then I have a little coffee table book that I keep dipping in and out of, which is by Tashin. And ah. it's imagery of 1960s adverts, and that's very pleasing mm. and interesting for like poster design and stuff like that sure. as well. So that's cool. Because you are a design, you you do do poster design and imagery and stuff. I you dabble. Didn't really discussed that last time. No, I dabble. I'm um, pretty rubbish still on Photoshop and uh, any kind of editing software, but I'm I'm learning. Um, I've always done 
more visual art and design as well as theatre anyway and but I've always been really analogue with it so I'm just starting yeah. to up my skills now yeah so I've been doing bits and bobs of graphic and poster design mm. fantastic um, uh, Michelle um, something that you have discussed before which inspired one of our regular questions that we, we ask at the end of every um, episode and um, so I, I think I somewhat know the answer to this question uh, but what was there anything that you invented or came up with the idea for, like a film or an actual invention, that didn't happen and then somebody beat you to the idea? I invented internet shopping in 1994, I think, 4 5, 1995 for GCSE uh, IT. Um, when it, you're now Googling it to see if it exists. Yeah. No, 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 go ahead. Um, so, so I did I did IT or computing or whatever it was called back then in uh, in GCSE, but they didn't really know. We we learnt a lot about CPUs and um, and uh, and monitors and mice and 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 input output, yeah. and that was about it. No. But um, I I was left with like paint I suppose whatever paint was back in the day oh, the, the, like, the computer program paint. Yeah, yeah and and I started drawing uh, like designs for clothes and my idea my project was that I would send these to a different computer and they would dress up their own people and design their own clothes and then send it back to me and that would be then made for them and come in the post and my computer teacher went well that's not possible and I don't understand why people would use that and therefore I uh, was shut down and I had to do something about secretarial things instead but yeah so the idea that your your computer teacher couldn't understand how why a potential customer would look at an image of an item of clothing, click a button, and have it delivered to them without trying it on. Yeah, he thought yeah. that people would have to try it on first, and and if they got their clothes, it wouldn't be what they wanted. So you know, you'd have to have a warehouse full of various different designs of clothes, and it wouldn't yeah. work. I, I've just checked. Um, Amazon was um, developed as a company, um, public as a company in July 1994. So it does Ooh. look like you might have just got to the idea. I mean, okay, they may have been having discussions before July 1994. Yeah, I think that may that may mean that I invented it afterwards, but I Ooh. certainly didn't know that it existed, so I don't know if that counts. Because no, do you remember when counts. England and America were so separate that whatever happened in America, you didn't get it for years? Or yeah, certainly no. in my 50s, house. Isn't it? No. No. All right, Chelsea. No. I remember watching. Millennial. I remember watching stuff like um, uh, uh, Ghostbusters or uh, the Gremlins, particularly um, coming out six months after they'd come out in uh, America. Which does mean that anything that was um, seasonally themed, like Halloween, never came out yeah. at the appropriate time. Well, I certainly didn't. I didn't use the internet or know of the internet. All I can remember is in 1998, I sent my first email to someone who was a distant member of my family who lived in America, and that was so memorable and exciting that I remember it to this day, and going, it arrived in America, it's in America, my words are in America already, and that was amazing. So whether that just means that was when I had access yeah. to the internet, I don't know. Again, the question that I often ask uh, is, um, where in Brighton, outside of, you know, um, 
your your own uh, place uh, do, do you find yourself being creative is there a coffee shop or a bar or whatever you go, oh this is where I like to hang out I like to go to Mojo's. It's on the, um, it's on the Lewis Road, isn't it? It is. It's on so the Lewis there, Road. There are two Mojo's. Oh yes, yeah. Because there's one near the station, which is fine. Um, but I'm my my home cafe, the one that you know. If I'm if I'm popping out, that's that's the one that I go to. I don't write there. No. Just because um, I tend to anything around town, I tend to just have have my headphones in and listen to podcasts, and I tend to write in my head. Yeah. Places where I write are probably Presuming Ed's or Marwood's, which seem to be popular with that our creators. does come up a lot, yeah. and it's lovely that they're connected. I mean, I, I often spend a lot of time in Mojo as well. Mm. Uh, I, I spend so much time in Mojo, actually, that I'm now on Google Maps. You are. Mojo. There, there's an image of me <laughs> um, writing uh, as part of Google Maps, because the internal image of uh, Mojo's, the, the guy taking the photograph... Uh, it was about two o'clock on a, on, a, um, on a Thursday afternoon. The guy came in and uh, let us know what he was doing, partially because of uh, anybody being concerned about their own image being online, but also, as he, he said to me, so if you're bunking off work, yeah, uh, you, you might want to... Um, or having an affair yeah. or planning a murder, like any of those things. That's a film. I'm fascinated that those are the three options that came to you immediately. <laughs> the only three. The only, yeah, what else could you be doing secretly? I have no idea. Yeah, no. Right, Planning yeah. a murder, yeah. having an affair. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Basically. You probably need to watch a lot more Hitchcock. <laughs> um, so, uh, Michelle and Chelsea, and indeed, I guess I can include myself, Andrew, um, the, the creative team behind Model Organisms coming to a Brighton Fringe near you this May. What, what are the dates again? The dates are the 4th to the 7th of May at 7pm, and then the 15th to the 17th of May at 7pm at the Sweet Jukebox. It's a wonderful place to be working on and we're looking forward to it, all, all three Thank of you. us. And we, we will see you there at the two box. Yeah. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cast Iron Theatre Podcast, presented by me, Andrew Allen, edited by Michelle Donkey. Music is Chapstick by Everett Arnold. Find us on Twitter at cast underscore iron acts on Facebook with Ironclad Cast Iron, all one word, and our website is castironbrighton.weebly.com. Subscribe to us and rate us on iTunes. Thanks for listening.